Welcome to episode two of Create Sacred Places. This is Matthew, your host, and I'm here to share another story with you. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with my friend Heidi about her experience with COVID-19. I think as we near election day, her story and the stories of people like her are more important than ever. I hope you enjoy this conversation and come away with a new understanding of what the world is like for so many right now. Enjoy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm the Reverend Heidi Carrington Heath, and I live in Exeter, New Hampshire, here on the East Coast. I work as a chaplain and a consultant um, doing sorts of different progressive churchy things. And I'm also here today because I am a survivor of COVID-19. So... I know very early on you and your beloved spouse were very, very careful. Um, you you were as early as we were in our family. We in our church, you know, we started uh, not meeting a person earlier than most other places did. So tell us about, you know, how that was for you with all of that early on. Yeah, so I was working last uh, last spring as the chaplain at a boarding school um, here in New Hampshire. So we really uh, had this on our radar in some ways earlier, probably than the general public, because we served students from all over the world. So sort of, you know, started to creep onto our radar across the winter. And we started to talk pretty early about what could the implications of this be for our work. And so... Um, I had a pretty good sense when we sent the students home on spring break in very early March, it was likely they would be delayed in their return to us or not potentially not make it back for the spring. Um, so we took things pretty seriously here at home. We actually were away on a brief vacation um, in early March and kind of as we left um, and sort of got to where we were going, it became pretty clear over the course of those few days how serious this was getting. And we kind of, you know, at that point, we took all the precautions, um, made the decision while we were away on vacation for my spouse's church um, not to meet the following weekend and sort of at that point take things week by week. Um, lots of hand washing, lots of disinfecting. Of course, now, you know, we know likely we should have been masking at that point as well, um, but no one was having that conversation yet at that point in time. Um, I haven't been into a grocery store since probably late February. Um, it's very weird for me to think about going back to sort of old grocery shopping um, because we've been delivery is really nice. It's so great. Right. It's so great. Um, and, you know, just obviously want to honor, we have a lot of flexibility and privilege given our clergy work that other folks don't. So we were able to, to stay home and start to make some transitions um, in our life pretty quickly in a way that did not threaten our jobs or our livelihood or any of those things. So then you got COVID. Then I got COVID. And I know from what you've shared that your journey with COVID was not like what you hear on the news very much. The people who yeah. recover relatively quick, like 
or die. Like that's the extremes you hear about in the news. You don't hear about the people in the middle who end up being the long haulers like you. So would you tell us about that part of your COVID journey? Sure. So um, shortly after we got back from traveling in March, um, I started to show some symptoms, you know, congestion, um, headache, etc. And interestingly, right before we had left on vacation, kind of before COVID was really on the radar more broadly. Um, and we weren't, we didn't really realize how serious it was. You know, I had gotten sick with what I assumed was the students kind of end of the term cold stuff, because that regularly happens, um, and got a fever and a sore throat and some body aches. And those kind of came and went in a couple of days. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm better. I went back to work. But I was so tired. Like it was a fatigue, like nothing I had ever experienced. And it sort of persisted all the way through our trip. And so when we came back, um, you know, I started to feel pretty crummy, like congestion, cough, sore throat, the respiratory stuff was ratcheting up. And I thought, I wonder if I have COVID. Um, so kind of after four or so days of symptoms, I went to my doctor's office and said, I think I need to get seen. Here's what's going on. Um, and the person who evaluated me, tested me for flu, tested me for strep, tested me for mono, all of them came back negative. Um, and like, honestly, she didn't totally take me seriously. Um, you know, she kind of said, well, you have asthma. Well, it's probably viral, probably compounded by allergies. Like go home, call the hospital. If you get worse, don't show up without calling. Okay. Bye. Um, and you know, all of this time I had been masking at home, sleeping in a separate room, trying to isolate from my spouse in case, in case, in case. And a couple of days later, still wasn't better. Respiration was getting worse, but like wasn't bad enough to go to the hospital. Um, and I, so I ended up basically um, a friend called a friend at the local urgent care center and was able to get me in there to get seen right as they were starting to COVID test people. Um, but similar to, you know, what we were talking about before we started, I had no clarity at that point about like what my insurance would pay for, what my insurance wouldn't pay for, and just sort of had to take the chance, um, because I thought it was important for me to get tested. And, you know, and it was a scary, the first, that first week or so was really scary. I mean, fevers, like I've never had in my life and trouble breathing and just so, so much pain, body pain, joint pain, um, I, I've had some bad runs of the flu and other things in my life. And I have never felt like that first stretch really felt. I mean, and it was, it was middle of March at this point. So mm -hmm. like, there was no idea of what treatments might or might not work and right. barely testing. So, um, so how long were you like really experiencing the worst of the symptoms? Um, I mean, I would say all in probably about um, 14 days or so. So I really had a week um, of feeling really bad and then developed secondary pneumonia, which we now know is really common for right. folks with COVID, especially folks like me with asthma. Um, thankfully, in my case, antibiotics and treating it at home took care of it. You know, I didn't didn't get any worse, but that first sort of two really, really scary weeks was hard. And in a real way, from the time I sort of first started showing symptoms to the time I feel like I really started to to uh, earnestly climb out of the 
the acute phase, um, probably all in was four to six weeks. And so even recently, it's been a struggle for you to get back to quote unquote normal. Yeah. Not that anything is normal these days. Yeah. Um, what's that part been like? Because I think that's really the part we don't hear about. Yeah. Is, yeah. And especially because you got it earlier on in right. the time of things, you have more experience. So I think that part of your story is important to share too. So. Of course. So, yeah. Um, so probably my acute phase, I would say lasted four to six weeks. Um, but I, I still wasn't better. Um, I, you know, the body and the joint pain just lasted and lasted and lasted. I would notice when my allergies flared up, my lungs sort of felt worse than they ever had with my seasonal allergies. And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. I was super fatigued. And, you know, you sort of think, because this is the society we live in, and anybody who's an overachiever like me will resonate with this, you know, I just sort of thought, oh, I'll get over it. You know, I'll just kind of keep going. I'm not bad enough, like, to stay stay home any more than we were already staying home or miss work or whatever. Like, it'll just go away. And it didn't. Um, and so I went to my primary care doctor in early June, which at that point I'd been showing symptoms for 12 weeks. And, you know, and said, I don't know what's happening, but here's what's going on. And she immediately said, yeah, like, you know, we got to, we've got to figure out what's happening for you and ran a whole bunch of blood work. And our first big indicator, something was really wrong, um, is my inflammatory protein, which is a protein in your body that measures when your body is in a state of inflammation or having an inflammatory response, usually related to your immune system, um, was eight times what it should be. And she said, okay, <laughs> like this is, this is not normal. And I mean, we tested for so many things at that point. So she said, okay, it's time to send you to a rheumatologist and have them really dig into what's going on in your immune system, what's happening here and try to get ahead of your pain. Um, and I am for all intents and purposes, a previously healthy 37 year old. I mean, I didn't, aside from some mild, generally exercise induced asthma, I'm not walking in here with any kind of a major health concern prior to this. So I really overnight felt like I went from reasonably healthy person who ran a 5k occasionally, um, to, someone whose body like all of a sudden couldn't walk up and down my stairs without pain. So in early August, um, and keep in mind at that point, we're five months in to symptoms. I saw a rheumatologist who really, you know, ran through my symptoms and my history and looked at my blood work. And he said, oh no, this is COVID. He said, I've had 20 patients this spring, exactly like you, young, previously healthy, got really, really sick in March or April, you needed an act of Congress to get tested. Or by the time people got access to testing, their testing came back negative because you were outside of the testing window in which you likely would have gotten a positive hit. And he said, and now your system is just sort of your immune system has gone haywire as a result of fighting this, you know, new novel coronavirus for so long. And it was the first time, like, I almost cried from the relief of both, okay, now we have an answer about what's happening, and someone who these two doctors back-to-back -back had believed me. 
they had believed me when I presented my symptoms to them. And what I hear over and over again from other long haulers is, you know, it took me three doctors, four doctors, five doctors until somebody had seen this before, until somebody believed me when I told them I was still sick this many months out. And my rheumatologist actually said to me at our last appointment, I'm so glad I got you as a patient in August because by then I knew what to look for. You know, by then you weren't novel, you weren't brand new. I wasn't trying to figure out like what's happening when all this testing, you know, looks this way. And I knew what to look for. And so sure enough, he ran more blood work and the blood work came back almost identically, which really confirms there's not, you know, underneath that something else going on. It's that my body has been in this profound state of inflammation and immune response as a result of COVID-19. So now we're how many months away from when you got it? Seven. Seven. What's changed for you? So, yeah, I mean, we don't know for sure that I will ever go back to the way things were um, in terms of my physical health. The hope is by the time I hit the one year mark, which will be this March, that we will, my body will kind of have worked out what it needs to work out. And we will be in a place with my pain management regimen that the inflammation has come down. My body has settled sort of, I am as much back to baseline as we, we will get, but we don't know for sure. One of the really interesting and hard pieces of being a long hauler is our bodies are the living science. You know, we are the, the science that's writing the studies that you see, um, one of the long haul groups I'm a part of put together a survey sort of collecting people's symptoms and information and all sorts of things. And that information has now gone in front of the National Institutes of Health and the CDC and some other places um, because we have the best data right now based on our lived experiences. So that's been sort of a really interesting thing, right, as my doctors are doing the best they can do to care for my symptoms, but nobody knows how I'll feel in six months. Nobody knows how I'll feel in two months. So we're hopeful, you know, within a year or so of when I was initially infected that my body will reset itself. Um, And I am not special. That's the other thing I think I would say is, you know, I am part of a community online of thousands and thousands of people who in one way or another, contracted COVID-19 early in this pandemic and are still dealing with debilitating symptoms, vascular symptoms, pulmonary symptoms, um, in my case, rheumatological symptoms. Like there are whole buckets of different things people are living with and having lingering effects from many, many of us younger than people realize. And the thing really is that there's so much that we still don't know because... We have to wait for people like you to keep telling us. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the only positive thing I can think of out of this is that we're learning as we go. We are. And um, hopefully people will listen and not repeat the past. Man, I hope so. <laughs> What's been the most surprising thing to you during all of this? I think the most surprising thing to me is how science has been politicized. Um, I never imagined a world where when the science so clearly says wearing a mask is the best thing that we can do to mitigate the spread of COVID-19, that we would be seeing the level of resistance to something so small. Um, it's just been been really surprising to me. I just didn't see that coming. And I sort of confess, I, I hyperventilate a little bit now looking at photos of all of us from 
early March or even early April before we knew what we know now, um, kind of all running around without our masks on. And I'm like, oh, if we had known what we needed to know, if the government had told us, you know, we lost so much time. I mean, I was on an airplane the first week of March. Yes, and, me too. Like, and I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, just yesterday I was taking my kid on a walk. He likes to go to the park and see the ducks in the pond. And we crossed the street to get to the park. And there's just like so many people and none of them had masks on. I'm like, okay, we're yeah. going home. Like we're going the other way. Like some days yeah. the park is empty. And some, I'm like, what are people thinking? Like I realized that surfaces we've decided are a little bit safer now. So like playing on the playground may not be the worst thing you can do, but like doing so without a mask, maybe not a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting how the election has now changed where this is such a big part of it. Um, the, the news around this changes all the time, unfortunately. Like, it seems like yeah. something is changing every day. Where do you find hope in all of this? Yeah. Um, so I, you, I'm sure, have heard me say this before. I really believe that hope is a discipline. So it's something we have to practice. It's mm -hmm. a set of muscles that we build to um, lean into when things get really hard so we don't fall into despair. Um, so for me, a piece of that is trying to practice joy every day. So even like tiny, small things like the fall leaves here are really beautiful right now. So yesterday I took a really short walk outside and just took photos of how beautiful the leaves were and sent them to my sister-in-law. Um, and little sort of daily practices like that have been really helpful to me. I am profoundly hopeful about the kinds of community that I see people building around their experiences of COVID-19. You know, these groups I'm a part of that are bringing together literally people from all over the world who don't know each other um, across all kinds of identities and all kinds of experiences to share what's been happening for us and to support each other. Um, it is the truest sense of community that I've had in a really, really long time. I mean, that's one of the gifts we've had from this season of being, I hate the term socially distanced because we're, we're physically distanced. We're, we right. need to be social still. We're still social beings. So we, we have found ways to do that, that, I think many people resisted before and, and thinking that it wasn't good enough uh, for connecting with one another. But, you know, we're, we're in the millennial age range. And so, you know, we've been more open to those things and the way we've connected with all of our friends and colleagues previously is like, hey, we've already got this figured out. We know how to be together with being physically apart. Um, seeing these different ways of community forming in ways they hadn't before has been surprising to me. Uh, and I think that's where I see some hope is, you know, people, people connecting. I mean, you were able to guest preach for us and you wouldn't have been able to do that before without flying out here. And right. as much as you like California, you can't just pop on an airplane and do that all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, so those are the ways I find hope of this will end eventually. Like things we will learn. And even if, the coronavirus is around like the flu we will learn to yep. to live and cope with it in ways that we can't yet um yep so i keep looking for the ways that what we're learning now with even the way we interact with one another how that can teach us going forward like everything mm -hmm. isn't going to like going back to normal may not be the best thing for That's us right. like there's so many things that we can do better um that we may have learned during this time and then, of course, I mean, everything to do with systemic racism that's popped up because of the way communities of color. Yeah, I mean, like, like that's just way more complicated than we can get into. But, uh, you know, I think 
all of this sucks a lot. I mean, it does. Yeah. Uh, and you don't know how long it's going to be for you before any semblance of normal returns. I mean, that's true for all of us with right. Well, maybe in the next fall before there's a vaccine that's widely available at this point. Like, it, you right. know, the, the timeline keeps changing because right. it's hard. But I think reminding ourselves of these stories of how we are all figuring out how to be during this time yeah. are ways to work those muscles of building hope, uh, of creating hope for ourselves. Absolutely. That's hard to do in isolation. It's something yeah. that we have to do as a community. And that's why I, even with this podcast, I shifted this year to what our stories are and people will connect with them in different ways. And we just have to be brave enough to share them. That's right. I think so often we don't think we have a story that's worth telling. You're one of thousands who've had COVID who we wouldn't get to hear from if you weren't brave enough to share it. So thank you. I, I thank you for your willingness. Thank you. I've been really surprised, honestly. Um, I didn't anticipate how many people would be interested um in my story and you know i recently gave an interview to a local reporter here who approached me and said um you know i heard you testify in support of a mask ordinance in our local select board meeting i was really moved by your story and i'd love to tell it and i just um i was really surprised but he also did an extraordinary job you know of really making the story tangible and human and something people could connect to and I, you and I are clergy, like we're in the business of holding and telling stories. And I really believe in the power of someone's story to change, change lives. And if those of us who are long haulers, especially can talk about our experiences and can tell our stories, if that changes even one heart or even one mind or somebody puts on a mask or lives differently, that's worth it. We have to do something to combat the message of don't worry about this. Right. Because we should. We have to take this seriously. Yeah. And, I, and I think the hardest thing with the mask, wearing a mask is a, a very intentionally selfless act. It's not for you. That's it's right. for everyone else. And it's so hard for people to understand that sometimes, I think, of it's it's not about you getting it. It's about you sharing it with everyone else and not knowing about it. That's right. Well, thank you. Thank you. I hope your recovery continues and that it's less than a year before you figure out what's going on. Keep all of us updated as things change and you learn more too. It's changing every day, it seems. Yeah, it really is. And I will, as I learn things, we'll try to share them in hopes that they might help someone else. As much as people like to not think so, we're all in this together. We really are. It is this kind of thing really brings us into caring for one another in ways that we really don't like to sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And thanks for the invitation. I want to thank Heidi again for taking time out of her life to share her story with us. In this time when our country and world are so divided, I really believe it's only through hearing and understanding one another's stories that we might find a way to become one people united in our care and love for one another, creating sacred places wherever we go. Until next time.